Today, I want to talk to you about resurrection, which is a shocker, I know, on Easter. And so, uh, but I want to give you kind of a different idea about it and maybe some of the meaning we can pull from it. And so to start, I want to take one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. So we have four accounts of the life of Jesus that are written uh, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the names of the Gospels. I don't necessarily the guys that wrote those books, but those are the names of them. Now, what's interesting about these accounts, and it's important for you to remember this, The Bible is not a book, it is a collection of books and letters. And so these are four accounts. These would have been letters and the writings that have been passed around the early church, but four accounts of Jesus' life. Now, as you read these accounts, there are some differences in those accounts, and some of them focus on different things more than the other one. But at the end of the day, they all come together towards the end, and they focus on this one event, which is the life of Jesus, but also the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus. And they have this all in common. And today I want to take a look at what Luke says about it. And Luke is one of the more thorough accounts when it comes to what happens after the crucifixion of Jesus and what happens next. And so it's written in the book of Luke. It says, on the first day, so this is right after the crucifixion, the first day will be representative of Sunday in their calendar, just like ours. Very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So a couple important details here about this just opening verse. First of all, you would take spices to a tomb... Because if there was a dead body there in that tomb, the body as it's dead starts to decompose and it starts to smell. And so they would take these spices and they would wrap these spices in with the linens of the decomposing body so it did not smell as much. So these women are taking spices to the tomb because they expect there to be a dead body there. They were not expecting to find what we are going to see here in a second. They weren't, and that's an important detail. The second thing I just want to mention, just because it would be fun, is um, after the crucifixion of Jesus, all of the men leave and they go in hiding. The women see this all the way through. It's the women who are following Jesus that are going to the tomb to prepare the body. It's the women that are not in hiding. So you can talk about that in the car and what that means on the way home, okay? (laughs) But the women get there, and they find the stone has rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Because again, they're looking, expecting there to be his body, and they're going to take the spices. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in the clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces, took to the ground. But the men said, why do you look, and this is a great line, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, it's an honest question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? But the women's response would be awful because it's a, it's, a, it's a grave. We expect there to be a dead body here. And so these women, they come. And Jesus isn't there. It's interesting because you've got to remember that no body, including the women closest to Jesus, was expecting there to be no body. And so they leave the tomb and they rush to tell the men who again are in hiding everything that they've seen and experienced. And this next verse is one of my favorite verses in the Bible and we'll all relate to this a little bit. And here's the next verse in the Bible. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense, right? <laughs> Anybody ever been there? All right, don't raise your hand. All right. But they didn't believe the women. They should have believed the women. Husband, you should have believed your wife. But they didn't because it sounded like nonsense. Now, it's not sounds like nonsense because it's coming from women. It's, that sounds like nonsense because, again, they didn't expect there not to be anybody in the tomb. They expected that these women would find this. Now, there's an interesting thing that we have to point out about this overall kind of start of the story is you have to understand that in the first century, in all four of the Gospels, 
they kind of hinted this fact that the first witnesses to experience the resurrection of Jesus, to see the empty tomb, were women. Now, that's an interesting detail because what you have to understand, in the first century world, a woman's testimony was not considered valid. In fact, it went as far if there was a trial, a woman you would never bring to testify because the courts would not consider her testimony valid. Now, thankfully, we've moved on past that place, and it's still getting better for women in this world. But in their culture, you wouldn't do that. And so there's an interesting thing is this. Listen, if you were making this up, you would not say the first witnesses were women because nobody would believe you. But Luke and all the other gospels kind of affirmed that there were these women that at first experienced this resurrection experience. And why would they do that? Because that's what happened. They're just telling what they experienced and what they saw. So one of the guys that hears about this is Peter. He's the over-caffeinated disciple. And Peter eventually gets up and he takes off running towards the tomb. And he goes towards the tomb. And in verse 12, it says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away. And here's the great line. He doesn't assume that Jesus is resurrected. What does he do? He wonders what had happened. Did somebody take the body? Did somebody do something with the body? Am at the wrong tomb? Like, what is going on? Because there's great confusion and bewilderment. Because once again, nobody expected there to be a resurrection. Here's further evidence of that. Verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going. So two of them is referring to two of the disciples. We don't find out who these two disciples are. But two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they are going back home. Emmaus is more than likely where they're from, and they're leaving Jerusalem. And the reason they're leaving is because, think about this, they've spent the last couple years of their life following Jesus, which means when you follow Jesus, and when a rabbi chooses you in their culture, and Jesus is considered like a rabbi or a teacher, you leave everything. You leave your family, your friends, you leave your job, you get up, and you take the opportunity to follow this rabbi. And this is what these guys have done. And so they've been following Jesus, but now they're headed home. So why are they headed home? Because the guy that they've been following, the guy that they thought was the guy, is dead. He's been killed. And death has a way of ending movements, right? And so now this guy's gone. And here's the thing. I mean, you got to understand this. And we, we talked about this before. And this is important if you don't know this detail. Um, Jesus wasn't the first one to claim to be the Messiah. There had been lots of them. In fact, what's interesting is there's even other stories of men that are performing miracles and healing people before Jesus in fact, it's almost like, oh, that's a good trick, Jesus. What else you got? I mean, there were other people that had done that, but there's the problem is every single person that claimed to be the Messiah up until Jesus, there's this problem. They keep dying. And now here's Jesus, another false hope who's now dead. And so these guys are heading home. And imagine the embarrassment. For three years, they've dedicated everything to this guy, and now he's dead. And so in verse 14, it says, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened because they'd experienced a lot. And obviously, Jesus, their leader, has just been crucified and, and buried. And so as they talked, discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. It's an interesting detail. And, and so they're walking, and, and you've got to read it for your love. It's, it's a pretty lengthy piece of scripture. I don't have time to get into all of it. But they're walking, and they're upset. They're downcast. The Bible says they're depressed. And Jesus kind of says, well, what are you so upset about? And so they tell about Jesus to Jesus what's just happened. And what's interesting is Jesus takes these words that they say, and he says, no, you don't understand. Like, 
All of this was meant to happen. And he starts to tell them everything that's going on, but they're so confused. And here's what's interesting about this. So think about this. First of all, women are your first witnesses. Then you have Peter, who Peter doesn't like to be a guy that likes to be called out very much. You can see in the Gospels. But he's called out because he doesn't know what's going on. And then now you have these two disciples that are going home because they think it's over. These are the guys that started telling the stories of Jesus. And in all of these stories, they make themselves look silly and confused and bewildered by what's going on. And so if you were making this up, you wouldn't include any of that in the text. You'd be like, oh, we knew it the whole time, right? None of them recognized Jesus or what he had done. And then Luke gives us this interesting detail. It's fascinating. Maybe you've never read this part. So everybody's confused at what's going on. Nobody recognizes Jesus. And then he says he stops at a table and he sets down and he breaks bread. And the Bible says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now think about this. This is interesting. What is the last scene with Jesus and his disciples before he dies? He's at the Last Supper. He's breaking bread with them. And there's this moment in which nobody recognizes him. Everybody's confused. And then all of a sudden, Jesus breaks bread, and they recognize him. I don't know about you, but if I rose from the dead and my friends didn't recognize me, it would be so frustrating, right? I've tried that joke three times, and none of it's got the approval that I wanted, so I'm just going <laughs> to cut that out for the last service. So Luke tells the story about Jesus rising from the dead. People don't believe him. They're confused by him until they stop and they have a meal. Now, why is this a significant detail? Well, we've talked about it before. One of the things that's interesting is that breaking bread has extreme significance within the context of the story. I mean, obviously today we're going to do communion later, so we still take on and carry on this tradition. But breaking bread is incredibly important, especially to a first century Jewish person. Now, it's important to understand that in the first century Jewish culture, breaking bread was a really big idea. In fact, it was central to life. And the reason it was so important is because they believed that bread was a gift from God, that bread is something that sustains them. Now, the reason they believed that this was a gift from God is they couldn't just go to Kroger right now and walk down the bread aisle and get a loaf of bunny bread. They couldn't do that. If you wanted to eat, if you wanted bread, somebody had to pick it, someone had to mill it, someone had to grind it, someone had to then turn it into a dough, and then someone had to bake it. Usually it was yourself. You didn't have a corporation or a group of people doing this for you. And as you're taking the process, you're not only enjoying the process, but you're realizing that all of it comes from the earth, and it's all a gift. And to have the opportunity to sit down and to break bread with someone is a gift of life. There's even this great Jewish phrase that every temple is an, every table is an altar. Every table is an altar. Because see, for their understanding, the center of their religious life was not always the temple or the synagogue or for our context, church. This was not meant to be the center of your religious life. No, but the idea of actually taking time to break bread in your home with the people you love, the people that you've been entrusted with, that's an experience. And putting bread on the table represents that God who sustained you and your life. So Luke tells the story that until they sat down and they break bread, 
Now, here's what I want to say this all means, because I think this is a different take on it, maybe for, for some of you. But here's the thing. See, you have to understand that this all takes place within the first century, but also within a Jewish context. And Jesus is considered a Jewish teacher or rabbi by his followers. And so we have to understand his viewpoint of the world. First of all, when he rises from the dead, it's interesting that the first act he does is break bread again. And why is this important? Because, see, we have to understand and maybe you've been taught this, and it's a, it's a wrong teaching, that we weren't created for this world. We were meant for somewhere else. That's not in the Bible. It's not true. We were created for this world. This earth is our home. Jesus has not come to help you evacuate to somewhere else. He does not rise from the dead and say, the next ship leaves at midnight, right? That's not what he does at all. He does not say, here's how you get out of here He rises from the dead and he sets down with bread that comes from the earth because, see, his understanding as a first century Jewish rabbi is this world matters. Flesh and blood, dirt and sweat, grain and seed, air and water, it all matters. In fact, if you were to trace the story of the Bible, and don't believe me, we don't have time to do it, but if you did and you started in the book of Genesis, here's what you understand. The earth is created and we are created for it to take care of it, to keep it, to tend to it. And then the story unfolds about a God who takes up residence and walks amongst us in it, who comes along eventually through Jesus and flesh and blood to save it. The book of Revelation, let me ask you a question. Where does it end? Here. New heaven, new earth. It ends where it began. The Bible is a story about this world, but here's what's interesting. The Bible does not begin with sin and destruction and hatred and war and violence violence and human trafficking and all of the things that we've done wrong. The Bible begins with a God who makes it, and then this is what he says. He says, it is good. It's good. And then he creates me and you, and he says, it's good. And then he creates woman, and he says, It's very good. The first word about creation is that it's good. The Bible does not begin with all the ways that human beings, including you and me, have found to screw things up and makes it a toxic environment and about all of our fractured and broken relationships. The Bible begins with it's good because it was created and we are created in the image of God. Now, here's the thing. You and I choose to do destructive things with it. And you and I may harm others, and we may live in ways that destroy the peace that God intends, not only for us, but for all things. Shalom is center to the story. The Christian story is not about a God who says, oh no, what a mess, let's do something else, it's all going to burn one day. No, it's about a story of a God who comes into human history, as Eugene Peterson once says, he takes on the flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because this is a story about a God who wants to rescue the world, redeem the world, repair the world, and restore the world. That's the story that we're given. And so it's interesting that Jesus, when he rises from the dead, the first thing that he does is not give a speech. He breaks bread. 
So what might we learn from this? What might we learn from all of this interesting stuff that's going on? And so let's recap how we got to this point. See, Jesus' life is interesting. And I think that there's more to it than just the crucifixion and the resurrection. See, here's what's interesting. In Luke chapter four, what we find out is Jesus starts his ministry. Now, when he starts his ministry, he gives his first sermon in his hometown, which you think people will be excited about. The problem is nobody likes it. And so after his sermon, they take him to the edge of the cliff and they want to push him off. They want to kill him. Nobody said, hey, let's add a second service. They're like, let's kill this guy right now, right? Which as a preacher is incredibly comforting to know that unless the co-congregation is trying to kill you, you're probably doing a pretty good job, right? Because Jesus had the opposite. At one point right after this, his family comes to get him because they think he's lost his mind. Jesus' family, there's this conflict that begins between them, which they think he's crazy, Because back in those days, people had conflict with their family. Back then, right? Not anymore. Chapter 6. The religious leaders are furious, and they begin to discuss what they might do to him because of the things that he's saying. Chapter 11. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Jesus is healing people, and he's casting out demons, right? And it's his upsetting people that he's casting out demons, which is interesting because I've generally observed the less demon possession, the better, right? Um, but they're upset about it. And, and so they actually go and accuse him of being the prince of demons, which Jesus has this great line, and it doesn't translate this way in, in your English Bible, but it actually is the way it translates. It's like this kind of brilliant thing where he's like, are you an idiot? Like, if I was the prince of demons, why would I be casting out demons, right? And, and so it's this weird thing because he's completely misunderstood by the people. In chapter 13, it tells us that one of the most powerful men in the area, he finds out, wants to kill him. This is Herod. In chapter 19, we, we see this story where Jesus starts to approach Jerusalem because it's getting towards the end of his story. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he starts to weep out of sadness. Chapter 22, we see this scene where he's sitting down with his group of friends And one of his closest friends, Judas, sells him out. He betrays him. You ever been betrayed? Is there anything worse than that? After he's betrayed, we find out that he's going to be arrested. And when he's arrested, the the men that arrest him, they begin to mock him and to beat him. And later in that same section, as Jesus is arrested and mocked and beat, we find out that all of his disciples scatter. One of his closest friends, Peter, is asked about Jesus. And he says, I don't even know who he is. I don't know who you're talking about. Then he's given an unfair trial. They can't find any fault in him. And and so they they march him out in front of a crowd of people. And and, and the belief is that if we march him out in front of these people and we give him a choice of who's going to be killed, either this criminal or Jesus, we found nothing wrong with him. And and the other side is, remember, I remember just five days earlier, these same people in the crowd welcomed Jesus into the city with cheer and applaud and palms. And the same crowd begins to yell, crucify him. And then we see Jesus on a crucifixion stake. And and I don't think we we can appreciate how much the cross really means. 
And we use it as a symbol, but you have to understand that, so, so the Roman Empire is the most powerful empire to ever rule the world. And they, they ruled most of the known world when, when they were at full power. And, and the way they ruled is shock and awe, power and intimidation and, and might. And so what they would do is they wanted to create a way in which we could take people and we could put them on display, people that rebel or people that we conquer or people that go against what we're doing. We want them on display. And, and here's the trick. You got you to keep them alive long enough so that people see the full agony of what's going on, but ultimately it has to kill them. But if you kill them too fast, then there's no agony. And if there's too much agony, then... And so what's the perfect balance? And they came up with the crucifixion. You ever hurt yourself or you ever talk to somebody and, and they say, I was in excruciating pain? The word excruciating literally translates out of the cross. So the word that we've created to describe the worst pain possible is the word that comes from this idea of crucifixion. And Jesus is on this crucifixion where, stake where he breathes his last. So let's look at the life of Jesus and recap. People from the beginning are furious with him. They accuse him. They oppose him. People want to kill him. He weeps at the sadness of his own people. He's ultimately betrayed, denied by his closest friend. He's insulted, treated unfairly, and then he's executed. What a life. But then he's resurrected, and he sets down with his disciples, and he says, would you guys like some bread? What story is Luke trying to tell? What is he trying to teach us? Is he trying to teach us that it's possible to experience the worst that a human can possibly endure? That you can be beaten, mocked, insulted, spit on, betrayed. Everything could go wrong that can go wrong. That you're misunderstood, that people turn on you. And eventually you're hung on a cross. Is it possible that everything could go wrong? Is it possible that you can endure the worst that a human being can endure? And yet you can come out on the other side. And imagine that if you can endure the worst that a human being can endure and come out on the other side. How dangerous of a person are you then? What are you going to do? Kill me? We've already been there. See, when you see Jesus, this resurrected, fearless man, think of the power. And he's alive. And he's given thanks and he's handing out bread. Because maybe it's possible to go through the worst thing that someone can go through and survive. And maybe only when you die and come back to life can you ever really live. See, here's what I believe about us. See, everybody in this room, we have this problem me included. We have all these things that we're afraid of, right? And so we have a lot of anxiety. Anybody in here have anxiety? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. I know you're nervous too, anyway. All right, anxiety. <laughs> All right, so we have anxiety. A lot of us have anxiety. I have anxiety. You have anxiety. Um, anybody worried about their finances? Anybody? Anybody stressed about that? We get stressed a lot about a lot of things. Anybody get stressed about things that don't really matter? Just me? Okay. All right, so um, anybody angry? You never know somebody's just always angry, like just always, always angry. doesn't matter what it is. They're just angry. They yell at people. They put people down. Um, do you ever notice that angry people look like idiots? All right, just a little insight there for you. But um, people are angry. How, how about this? How many of you worry about success? 
I mean, how many of us want to look successful, right? Everybody want to look successful, right? How about this? Do you ever get on somebody's Facebook or Instagram and you're looking at it and there's a microphone there and you're looking at it and what you realize about this person is it seems like they're trying to, to appear a certain particular way. You ever met somebody and you're like, you look at their Facebook and you're like, or Instagram or TikTok or Snap or whatever kids are doing now that we're adults trying to figure out what they're doing. Is, you ever looked at that and you've been like, you don't look like that at all, right? That's not your life. Why do we do that? You ever worry about what tomorrow looks like? So we worry, I worry, I worry a lot. You ever have regret? How about this? Do you ever struggle with wanting to control everything? Do you have somebody in your life that you have the perfect plan for their life? The problem is they just won't do it. You know those people? And so anxiety and stress, worry, fear, control, anxiety... The problem with these things is that they're all fear-based, aren't they? Afraid of tomorrow, afraid that you're not significant, afraid that you're not beautiful enough, you're not skinny enough, you don't have enough money, you're not successful enough, you're not accomplished enough. Do you, do you know there's a word that we've created? It's not a word, it's a, I don't even know what you call this, but you know FOMO, FOMO, fear of missing out. And the problem is that, you don't like to think about it, but these things have control of our life. These anxieties and worries are things that we fear. What would happen if you presented these to a resurrected Jesus who's went through the worst thing possible that any human being could endure, not only in the crucifixion, but even in his life. What do you think he'd say to you? (laughs) He might. I actually don't think he would say that. I, I think he would say this. Yeah. Whatever you think is the worst thing that could happen to you, it might happen to you. Because it happened to him. The worst thing that you can think of might actually happen. Did you know that? They might get sick. They might die. You might get sick. You might be misunderstood. You might be rejected. You might miss the party. But let's say that happens. Then what? What's on the other side of that? Because Jesus would say there's resurrection. Listen to this verse, Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart, so he's speaking to Christians, to me and you, may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called. So you've been called to hope. You haven't been called to live a miserable life. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Now listen to this. I also pray... Okay, this is a different translation than the one I want to use, but that's okay. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is same as the mighty strength. So listen to this line. So the power that's available to you and I in this life when we trust in Jesus 
is the same strength, the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So what is this telling you? The same thing that allowed Jesus to endure the worst a human being can endure and come on the other side of it and sit down with a group of people and say, would you like some bread? Is the same thing that's available to you as you go through this life. See, maybe one of the things the resurrection teaches us is Jesus didn't just come to give us life after death. And that's a big deal. I know we focus on that a lot, but maybe Jesus invited us to die now so that you could have life before death. Because some of us, we're not really alive, are we? Some of us, we are clinging so tightly to these things. Jesus tells us that he came to give us life and life to the full. And I'm telling you when, you, when you take these things and you hold so tightly to these things, I mean, some of us in this room, you guys, me included, we are white knuckling it, aren't we? Just to get through. When Jesus tells stories, did you ever pick up on the pattern of the stories that he tells? Jesus talks about losing things in order to find things. Right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. He tells stories about things that are lost so they can be found. Then he tells things about things that you have to let go of in order to find to begin with. At one point, he's telling all these stories and nobody's getting it. And so he literally says to his disciples, listen, if you want to keep your life, you have to lose your life. Which makes no sense, right? Until you think about where Jesus is about to go. Where he's about to give up everything. To find something. He even says, unless a seed falls to the ground and is buried, it can't rise. He talks about letting go so that you can actually receive. And he talks about losing something so you can find something. And then he says this, and this is my favorite one. He says, and he's come to make all things new. You can't make something new unless you're willing to get rid of the old, can you? So we grab and we hold tighter and tighter and tighter. But maybe part of the message of the resurrection is the invitation to die so that you can really live. Jesus invites us to trust him. And for thousands of years, people have experienced a particular kind of life when they trust him. And I don't know where you are on the religious spectrum or what you think about Christianity, but I get it. People will burn you. Institutions betray you, systems crush you, and some of your best friends may turn their back because it happened to Jesus. So why are you any different? But here's what I've learned. Everything you fear may happen. But there's something on the other side of that. And my experience is that a resurrected Jesus can actually be trusted. Jesus invites us into a life where we take and we include the idea of taking everything that we cling so tightly to and let go of it. We die to it. Because here's the thing. When you go through the worst thing imaginable and you come out on the other side, there's freedom in that. So Jesus' invitation is to this. May we learn the good news of the resurrection. Yes, we're forgiven. And yes, it is finished. 
And yes, a price has been paid that you could never pay for on your own. But maybe another side of the resurrection is that it is possible to go through the worst thing you could possibly imagine and come out on the other side. Jesus invites us to trust the good news that it is actually good. That Jesus came not only to give us life after death, but life before death. He is risen. He is alive. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Let's pray.